Hey everybody, this is Rupa. Thanks for all the ideas you're sending me. They're awesome. I should tell you that I like to do interviews in person, so I won't get to all of them immediately because for now I'm more or less stuck in one place. But I am planning trips and building a list, so keep sending me ideas. This episode looks at diversity and how it impacts representation and expression with two examples. One is how bringing together all different kinds of American Muslims is allowing individual Muslim Americans to tell their story. Art is a form of connecting with people and true art can never be defensive. It can never be like, oh my God, people think Muslims are terrorists, Donald Trump is gonna be president. Let's hang out and do poetry circles so people think we're cool people. Like that's not the point of this. But first we look at what happens without diversity. There's only one play about a Muslim touring the American stage, Disgraced by Ayed Akhtar. In the play, the Pakistani-American main character self-destructs because he seems to hate his Muslim identity. Ayed won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize, but he also took a lot of heat from the Muslim community. I talked to the Indian-American guy whose job it is to act that self-hate out every night, sometimes a couple times a day. What I do worry about, what has kept me up at night about this play, is there potentially an audience member could watch this play and if they, if they already have fears and misconceptions and prejudices concerning Pakistanis, the play could potentially confirm that. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. character in the play Disgraced is named Amir Kapoor. He's Pakistani-American, and he's changed his last name to make it sound more Indian. He lives in New York with his wife, who is white, and the play centers around a dinner they have for Amir's African-American co-worker and her Jewish husband. Their conversation starts like this. What's that like for you? What? Security, airports. No, you hear stories. Wouldn't know. I get right to the chase. He volunteers himself. Goes right up to the agents and offers himself up. What? To be served? I know, they're looking at me. I figure why not make it easier for everyone involved? Never heard anyone doing that before. On top of people being more and more afraid of folks who look like me, we end up being resented too. Those agents are working so hard not to discriminate. Then here's this guy who comes right up to him and calls him out. I mean, if we all got used to that kind of uh, compliance, we might actually start getting a little too comfortable about our suspicions. So you do have suspicions. I mean, not me, I'm just saying. You know, I had to read the Quran in college, and what I remember is the anger. Thank you. It is like one very long hate mail letter to humanity. That is not true. The dinner devolves into this. Did you feel pride on September 11th? If I'm honest, yes. We were finally winning. We? Yeah. You see, I forgot which we I was. You're an American. It's tribal, Jor. It's in the bones. I wasn't able to interview playwright Ayad Akhtar, but he talked to CBS for a story on Sunday morning. If critics were impressed, Akhtar admits some Muslims have complained. I get a bum rap from a lot of folks in my particular community for, quote-unquote, airing dirty laundry, as it were. 
I think in one interview you said your mother came up to you at one point and said, you got to stop this Muslim Got to stop it with this Muslim thing I have. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say to her? I just tell her, Mom, I'm just happy anybody's paying any attention. Ayad Akhtar says no one voice can speak for American Muslims in the theater. But at the moment, there is no other. Do you worry that you could end up being a target in some way? You know, I mean, my agent has at times worried about that. And if I have that fear at times, it's likely paranoia. And to the extent that it's not, it is the duty and calling of an artist to speak truthfully. That's it. There's no further discussion beyond that, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Consequences are what they are. Right. But what about the guy who has to act the role of a Muslim American self-hater every day? I talked to Rajesh Bose when Disgraced was playing at the Huntingdon Theater in Boston. With this play, I, I started having trouble sleeping. I still I, I sleep better than I did when we started, but I still don't quite sleep. What has kept me up at night about this play, this is now the third time I've done it. The last six months of my life have been this play, is they're potentially an audience member, and I'm going to say most likely a white audience member, could watch this play, and if they, if they already have fears and misconceptions and prejudices concerning Muslims, concerning South Asians, concerning Pakistanis, the play could potentially confirm that. I don't think any competent production or anybody just with a sliver of thought would actually think that coming out, as the play is very complex and many things are going on. But that is certainly a possibility. You know, the, the very first night that I did this was in, in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and the very first preview, the very first time I'm doing this in front of a live audience, and I say the N-word on stage, I thought people were going to come out of their seats and, and, and beat the hell out of me. And I couldn't sleep a wink that night because I was just thinking about these very things that we're talking about. Like, what are they getting exactly? Um, what are we saying exactly? Um, and it's things we talked about in detail in rehearsal, but it's different to talk about it and then actually experience it. And, or even not, is the, the play is asking questions, it's not really answering them. And um, I think my fear is that people may answer them in a way that that is disturbing to me. The question does have to be asked is, why does a play that at least on the surface, where uh, uh, the protagonist is a Muslim man and fulfills the stereotypes that the dominant culture has for Muslims, why is this the play that is getting all the productions? And there are many, many other plays out there written by Muslim Americans that certainly deserve productions. The, the, the issue is that this is de facto essentially the only story. Like if you, if you see the representations of South Asians on the American stage, we'll just talk about theater for now, this is pretty much it. This is virtually it. And this is the most produced play this theater season in the country. Uh, so I think this is where the conundrum with the play lies and that it can't be the only story. It's, it's, it's a story. And in the context of many stories about Muslim Americans, a man's journey through self-loathing, I think, is very compelling. But when it's the only one, it's, it, it's a, a very valid question. Is there something inviting about that to the dominant American culture? I don't know. If you're going to do this play, you have to do another one. You have to do another play by a Muslim American playwright. Because if you're going to tell this story, you've got to tell another one. Do you ever wish that the, the play was different? So the, the violence in the play, I've read many things that 
wish that Amir does not beat his wife. Like, why did it have to come to that? Why couldn't he, all the things that are happening to it, why did it have to result in violence? Meaning some people might get from that that he is inherently violent or his culture is inherently violent or whatever prejudice they might have. But I believe that the violence is necessary to make the point that this is a lifetime of suppression of rage that has been compartmentalized and put into places not that he is blameless, and I'm, please don't misunderstand me. I'm in no way justifying violence against anybody. But in what is happening in the story, it has to come out this way. It, it wouldn't do justice to, the, to what he has gone through if it doesn't come out this way. When my folks came to see the show in North Carolina, and I was disturbed that my parents were witnessing me doing this. And you know we we're not we're not we all know this is a play we all know it's we all know it's not actually me but it's still they were shell shocked a little bit by it. It it seems like he's gone through Islam and like picked out certain things and recited them. I mean, do you think it, 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 in living the character, do you think something happened to him or something like that back when that made him? Well, the, the, the incident he talks about in the in the play, he has a crush on a on a at, at ten years old, twelve years old, he has a crush on. A girl who happens to be Jewish, and, and his, when his mother finds out, his mother spits on his face, and then he ends up spitting on the girl's face. It's a horrifying story. And every time I do it, in three cities I've done it, no matter how I do it, <laughs> there's a gasp. The audience gasps. People, let's say white people, will listen to that story and think, wow, that's, the Pakistanis are really anti-Semitic. If you ask any Pakistani, it sounds ridiculous. Nobody would ever do such a thing. I'm not saying that this, it's imp, that it's entirely implausible that there's absolutely zero anti-Semitism in all of Pakistan. No, but but that story is a specific person doing a specific act. But it can easily become representative, and it's not. I don't think it's meant to be. But it de facto becomes that way. And my fear was kind of realized when I. Um, we did the play in, in New Haven at Long Wharf, and um, there was a student matinee, like uh, high school students or junior high students or something like that. And at the, when we got to Boston, um, our uh, assistant director handed us, uh, all the cast members, all these letters. I guess the teacher told the students to write thank you notes to whichever cast member you choose or something like that. And so I got a, a, a bunch of letters, and many of them were nice. It clearly seemed like a school assignment type thing. and <laughs> and uh, But one of them said, you know, I really liked your blah, blah, blah. Was it hard to do? And then he said, does your mother also hate Jews? And I read that, and I... It, it, it was awful, like, to, just to read that. That's, that's the worst. It's like, no, my mother does not hate Jews. <laughs> no, most Pakistanis do not spit on their children. But I, I think it is something that again, like anyone who grows up and not part of the majority, will have in their process of becoming an adult into their adulthood a, a journey of perhaps rejecting the culture they came from and then embracing it again and perhaps rejecting it again or whatever that journey is for everybody and it's different. Because it, it is very hard. You know, I grew up, uh, my parents are not particularly religious, but I do consider myself Hindu. I'm not particularly religious either, but, but if I were to fill out a form, I'd say Hindu without reservation. But 
you know, grow, I grew up in a, a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we were virtually the only non-white family in the entire school district. There might have been like a handful of others. I went to Emerson College, and I think that was one of two daisies in the entire student body that I was there. And even people who just were not white, it, there were very, very, very few. It's, it's not a, a conscious thing, I don't believe, that at that age, but there's some part of you that, that or I will say of myself, that consciously understood that I'm not like everybody else and that there's a slightly different face to put forward around most people that I encounter. And that can be painful. There's an element of pain in that for everyone who goes through that. You know, we live in a culture where white is the default, always. Always. If we were in a writer's room, or you know, let's say we were writers or we were writing a play or something, and I'm saying, so I'm thinking of this story, and there's a guy and a girl, and they, they, they run into each other at the subway, and maybe like... He trips on the subway and he trips over her and then they meet and then they fall in love. And we call it like subway. You know, I'm just making this up, right? So who are you picturing as these people? Are you picturing white people? Part of me is actually picturing white people. It's, it's, it's silly. But that's the default. And so anything that's not that is not normal somehow. It's funny. When I, when I was younger, I used to live in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But uh, when I was living there in my 20s, and most of the women, all the women I dated had been white. Uh, and somebody asked me, like, don't you like Indian women? And I was like, well, no, but I, it's not, I'm not going to seek out somebody simply, simply for that only one fact. That's kind of absurd. And I'm living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm surrounded by only white people. The people I get to know are only white. So, And then I think we have a hug on anyone who goes through this Oh, I know somebody perfect for you. She's Indian. Period. <laughs> Which is not something white people go through. <laughs> but I'm always tempted. I know someone perfect for you. She's white. So, yeah. <laughs> You're an Indian playing a Pakistani playing an Indian. Yeah, exactly. Amir hates himself. It, it's really sad. It's tragic. And, and you know, we see it. You know, there's a, 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 I don't know, maybe a year ago we saw a Bobby Jindal had like a portrait made of himself, right? And, and, and if you know what I'm talking and the portrait, he's like, he's like whiter than this wall here. This is a, for anyone listening, it's, it's a white wall. <laughs> like, um, and, and you look at him like, what? That's ridiculous. But it's sad. It's so sad that this man has so much hatred for, for the color of his skin that he has to change it you know when we talk about Bobby Jindal it's we, we it's funny we make fun of him there was a uh, that uh, Twitter meme going around you know Bobby Jindal is so white and then he's so white he doesn't even know how to pronounce Jindal he's so white he doesn't he actually puts yogurt in his yogurt containers he's so white like all these things you know <laughs> right <laughs> um and it's a joke but but I look at that painting I'm like that's just it's sad it's tragic that somebody has that much self-loathing and I think what the play is getting is, where does that come from? I can't imagine living this as hardcore as you. Like, you're churning up all of this stuff. So how, how has it changed you? You know, if, if these things that happen to us when we're young, they're deep, deep in our recesses, and we, they don't even pop into our head for months, 
now they're in my head. Now they're in my much more forefront in my bones. And there's, there's an exhaustion in that, for sure. I, I said, you know, soon after I graduated from Emerson, I started really pursuing and working on classical theater. I started really focusing on that hard. But the reason I did that is not because I had some really great love for that. It was more that when I looked around at what else I might be doing as an actor, it all looked horrible. Like, I don't want to do any of that. If you see a production of, of Richard III or Hamlet or something, where you'll see people of color in the cast and there's no... They're not there on purpose. They're not there not on purpose. It's just they were right for the role, and they're, they're there. And especially 20 years ago, I saw that as much more attractive to me. What about Muslims? What do they say to you about it? Who have seen well, that's, it? that's a lot of what I'm, um, you know, I have a, a good friend and, and colleague who lives in Chicago who runs a theater company in Chicago called Silk Road Rising. He's a Muslim-American. He's a gay man. He is Turkish, and his partner who they both run this theater company together, is Pakistani and Muslim. And he talks about seeing the very first production of this play ever in Chicago and how feeling how his partner, being the only visibly person of color in the audience, felt demonized by the other audience members as they were walking out. And when I read that and heard that, I was, it really horrified me because there is no way I want anyone to feel demonized by watching this play. And he, uh, he wrote a very eloquent, passionate response to the play. And ultimately, he, he, he makes a very passionate case that those of us who are in the minority have a responsibility to represent responsibly. This gets very complicated, however. What does that mean? Does Ayat Akhtar then have a responsibility to write Muslims who are only good people? I don't, I don't believe that's the case. I think that's, that actually puts another an unfair burden on a, on a writer of color that is not put on writers who happen to be white. Nobody's asking a white, you can't write that white serial killer then make white people look like we're all serial killers. No. <laughs> so, and again, this is a piece of art. It's a play. It is not advocacy. It is not a public service announcement. It's, a, it's, an unf it's something a white playwright doesn't have to go through. Um, and it's also something a white actor doesn't have to go through, meaning a white actor who plays a serial killer doesn't have to worry about representation. When I play this, I'm always thinking about it. It's always in the back of my head as to what it means to be doing this and what my responsibility is. You might see why young, creative Muslim Americans might be looking for diverse spaces where they can be themselves without being judged and without the risk of being seen as representative of all Muslim Americans. Hamdan Azar found himself searching for a place like that two years ago. Two years ago, I moved back to New York. I was working in California at a startup. I, I, it didn't work out. I came back to New York. Uh, I, I was like, I got to make friends because I'm from New York, but I hadn't lived there in many years. So I started going to young professional networking events, and I'd go to Friday prayers, and it'd be like everyone I met was like in finance or in corporate sector, or they were trying to, you know, they were grad students, or they were really like I couldn't connect with them. And I'm like, I read Murakami, and I'm trying to read like Jose Saramago, but his writing is really complicated, and I don't understand how he talks about the Portuguese Civil War. And they were like looking at me like I was an alien. So I had to hide that side of myself. 
myself. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm trying to do this kind of a job and I'm trying to do a startup and I'm trying to collect capital. I would just make shit up so I could connect with them. <laughs> it was really awkward. Um, and then I was like, wait, like instead of forcing myself to connect with people who I have nothing in common with, why not find people like me? So Hamdan created something called the Muslim Writers Collective. It's a group that holds monthly open mics for all Muslims, regardless of how they dress, how they interpret their faith, or their skin tone. The group grew fast, mostly through Facebook, and now it's in eight cities. I went to the first monthly open mic in Boston. It was in a small lecture hall in an old building on the Boston University campus. Tonight we have an awesome lineup of performers for you. That's Sarah Delati, who organized this event. Muslim Writers Collective is a platform for Muslim storytelling. Our goal is to create a diverse, safe space for Muslim Americans to share their experiences. People who take the stage talk about everything from dating to profiling. I'm just going to play you part of one performance by Nabil Ali. First time in the area, people looking at him like he's in a zoo. He's used to this, just more of the same. As always, brushes the situation off as lame. Leaves the store. At this point, he's got Kanye playing on loud. Here's an authoritative voice tingle from his spine to his toes. Excuse me, young man. Did you pay for those? Ali turns out to be a medical student who was inspired by the cadence of rappers like Lupe Fiasco. I'm, you know, someone who's traditionally science, engineering, medicine background. It's the farthest thing from an artist you would think of. But, but the fact is that art is simply just one's own perspective. And so me being able to share that with myself and then having the courage to step on a stage and share that with others... That was almost therapeutic for me because when you see people in the audience nodding their head or having a look in their eyes, that sort of makes a connection with you, letting you know that they really truly understand and empathize with the emotions that you're, you're, you're giving them. That feels really good. It's not only validating for yourself, but it's validating for them. But when you keep things in your head, you often think that you're alone in these, in, in these situations when you're not. You know, when the, when the poem went up that I performed a year ago called Late Night Drive, and I saw that it had something like 10,000 views online and endless comments, you know, sort of saying, hey, I feel that way. Hey, thank you for sharing this. People who said that it brought them to tears, that's, that was therapeutic for me because I'm not the only one who feels like this, and I have a better understanding of that and therefore a better understanding of myself. People lingered long after the open mic was over, talking to friends and meeting new ones, until they were interrupted. We have the Muslim writer collective creator. Hamdan Azar had arrived, and it was almost like a rock star walked into the room. I haven't really had a chance to check out any of the other chapters, and this was a time, you know, my friend hit me up yesterday. He's like, Boston, it's tomorrow, like, we gotta go. And I'm like, uh, let's do it. Were you ever surprised that there were this many people like you, Muslims like you? Absolutely. I continue to be surprised by that. I'm, I'm astounded by that because there are really no other places like this, like in, in, the, in the mosques or in, we all have a lot of young professional organizations in the Muslim community and they're very, everyone's networking and they're all corporate and they're all trying to climb the ladder, which is, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, they all have their elevator pitch, but I think we have other pitches besides our elevator pitches. And instead of meeting someone like, yo, here's my resume, I'm trying to get a job at KPMG. And it's like, no one wants to listen to that, bro. You gotta talk about, you know, you wanna be like, hey, I grew up in Brooklyn and I really wanted to be a writer and my mom's like, no, you have to make 
find a job that allows you to have a wife and have kids. So that's why I studied accounting and I do that. But on the side, I still write and I go to open mics on the side and I, I, I want to go to the moth and like that's my dream. But in the day, I'm an auditor and like that that's like my story. And you're like, wow, that's a really interesting story. And uh, empowering people to find that story. I think we have people who come and they're like, I could never do that. I could never get on a stage. I could never share my story. My story is not interesting. That's the biggest misconception people have. And they hear stories like, wow, like I had a breakup a few years ago. It was really painful. And then I, I couldn't tell my parents because I'm Muslim and I wasn't supposed to be dating. And then like my friends told me to do that. And like, I could share that story. Dude, I'm going to have to like slow you down. <laughs> yeah, bro. That's what tape. everyone tells me. Oh my God. That's like every <laughs> professor, every performance review. Everyone's like, oh my God, you talk so fast. I had a lot of coffee and I just drove four hours. So. All right, right. I'm just surprised that you can put your thoughts together that quickly. Yeah. Okay, what do your parents <laughs> think? What does your family think about this? That's a great question. I think my parents initially did not know what I was doing with my Friday nights once a month. And uh, they were, I think they were, I don't know if they were worried or they were just like, what are you doing? Like, what is it? And they didn't understand it in the beginning. And then I, I think I had to tell them the story of what this was in a way they could understand. So my dad is someone who worked in finance his whole life. But deep down, like, he's an artist. Like, he acted in college in, in TV plays and uh, he sings and like he has this incredible artistic side that he had to repress because his father passed away when my dad was only 19 years old and he had to get a job to support his family like that's my dad's struggle he doesn't talk about it every day he doesn't really talk about it ever because like he it's, it's not the kind of thing he's comfortable sharing and I'm like dude that's like your story and we don't want young people today to have to repress who they want to be and what they're passionate about just so they can get a corporate job. Like, you can do that. You can go to grad school. You can become a doctor and a lawyer. But, like, that side of you is valuable and it's worth sharing and people can learn from it and people want to be exposed to that. And uh, I think if my dad had had more venues to share that side of him, I think he would be a more wholesome, he would be a more happier, fulfilled person today. Okay, <laughs> but our parents were like that for a reason. I think when we came here, we were in that flight or flight mode and we're like, crap, like we have to make a lot of money, we have to get great jobs and buy houses and have lawnmowers because that's what we have to do to survive. Otherwise, why did we even come here? And they never knew what creativity meant. They never knew their stories were worth sharing. Like they just compartmentalized all of their identities. And here we are, like I'm a data scientist, like he's an engineer, like that guy's a medical student and we're all hanging out here uh, and you know we're not studying for the MCAT we're actually sharing stories and we're finding out that we are writers and we're actors and we're activists and that we can use our art to connect with people we can use our art as a form of activism that we can just let our art be art right like there's a whole idea that oh my god Muslims have to be creative so we can show that we're not crazy and I think that's uh, I think that's uh, I think it, it, it does a disservice to the value what true art is right art is a form of connecting with people and true art can never be defensive it can never be like oh my god people think Muslims are terrorists Donald Trump is gonna be president let's hang out and do poetry circles so people think we're cool people like that's not the point of this like I, we don't really you know Donald Trump can do his thing he had a cool reality TV show I watched it sometimes <laughs> what we're about is coming together not defensively not in a reaction to anything but in a natural outgrowth of who we are as as wholesome holistic people with multiple identities and multiple facets coming together and just expressing ourselves So that's this episode. Please keep reaching out because that keeps me going. And it's just awesome to hear from you. And thanks for listening. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this has been Otherhood. Oh, mm-hmm.